0: Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast about Jewish food, its history and culture and everything in between. My guest today is Gil Havav, direct from Israel and right here in Chicago. It's an honor to have him as a guest on The Big Schmear. And before we begin our conversation, I want to be sure all of you know the basics about my guest. Let me read to you from his very impressive bio. Gil Havav is a leading culinary journalist and television personality who comes from one of the most respected families in the Jewish world. He is the great-grandson of Eliezer ben Yehuda, the reviver of the Hebrew language, the grandson of Itmar ben Avi, who began modern Hebrew journalism, and the son of Moshe Endor Havav, founding members of Israel's modern-day public radio. Yilavav has played a major role in changing Israeli cuisine from one of the basic traditional foods to one of enviable gourmet dining. He began his career as a restaurant critic, moved on to become a newspaper editor, and was involved in creating, producing, and presenting some of Israel's most viewed and loved television food shows. He has led cooking demonstrations and seminars focusing on Israeli cuisine combined with his unique personal stories. As an author, Gil has published three best-selling novels all related to his family's colorful history. And he has lectured around the world about wartime cooking in Jerusalem, his great-grandfather, Eliezer ben Yehuda, and being gay in Israel today. Currently, Gil is busy with his publishing and production company Toad Communications. Welcome to the Big Shmir Gil. This is so exciting for me. Um, and As much as I know about you, I know it's like just a little bit. I feel like we have so much to cover, so little time. I'm not not even sure where, where we should start. But maybe I do. I think it's difficult to think about you separate from your family history. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it was growing up in a family that's known as Israel royalty. And how growing up in that family has... Influenced decisions that you've made along your path to being a professional.
1: Um, so, yes, I have some great figures in my family. <laughs> uh, the first, of course, is Eliezer ben Yuda, my great grandfather, uh, from my mother's side, and also my father Moshe Chovav, who was the head of the Israel of the IBA of the Israeli Broadcasting Authority and the news announcer that you know. Uh, on the radio, he's the one who was doing all the wars and he's the one who uh, informed the people that Jerusalem was liberated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he is considered sort of the voice of God.
0: Yeah, he would be an I- iconic, <laughs> iconic voice. Yes.
1: I must say that personally, I do not believe in royalty nor in aristocracy, of course, and uh, I, I really do believe that people should prove who they are and uh, do the best efforts that they can to, to, to be good people. And I've met so many idiots that are descendants of <laughs> smart people that, that I really think that uh, um, I have to prove who I am. Um, having said that, I think that when I was growing up, there was a sort of pressure to become a journalist and a writer. I always knew what I wanted to be ever since I was four years old. Really? I wanted to be a hotel manager. Okay, and I will be a hotel manager, <laughs> mind you. But uh, in my family, they always said yes, 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 yes. Yeah, you'll write a book about us. Yes, 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 yes. You'll write a book about us. Eventually, I wrote the Jeru- the Jerusalem th- uh, trilogy. Uh-huh. It's three books about my family that I wrote in the course of twenty years of short, funny stories about my family. Actually. The translation of one of them to English will be available in Amazon within a month from now. Oh, great! Called "Candies from Heaven." That's excellent. And uh, it's it's uh, it's eventually it's stories that I wrote to take revenge of my family. (laughs) You know, I told all the black secrets and all the awful truths, and and even invented some stories about them. And what's annoying is that they kept saying that it really happened. And I say, no, (laughs) I invented it. No, we remember it was just like this. So who knows?
0: You started the new family history, it (laughs) seems. (laughs) That's so funny. Uh, Let's see. So other family things. I'm wondering if you have a a favorite family holiday food story that you could talk to us about.
1: It's not necessarily a holiday, but the favorite family dish that I really love is a the Shabbat brunch dish, the Yemenite Shabbat brunch dish. Uh-huh. So Yemenites, on Shabbat, if they're religious, they go to synagogue. We were not religious. We never did. But they have a certain brunch that's called kubane. Kubane is a very big loaf of bread it's baked overnight, so it's sort of like chulnt, but v- right. much poorer, much poorer. It's, uh-huh. uh, it's only flour and water and yeast, and you eat it with some condiments, with tomato sauce, with schug, which is a Yemenite salsa, with helbe, which is another sauce, and uh, we would have it at my uh, grandmother from my father's side. My grandmother from my mother's side, we lived together, but my grandmother from my father's side lived in a nearby neighborhood, a very poor neighborhood in Jerusalem, and we would walk every Saturday morning to have it with her and with all her children. She had seven children. My father was not the eldest. He Uh he had six brothers and sisters, and they uh, all had children already. So they all flocked from all over Israel every Shabbat to Jerusalem to have kubane at the grandma's house. And my mother would always warn us, remember, kids? The pot is small, the family is big, (laughs) there's not enough for everybody, there's one piece per person. And she would always look at me and she would say, and you smart one, you think that if you say that food is great, we don't understand that you want seconds? No seconds! If there won't be enough, grandma will be very offended. Don't ask for more. Then we would come, of course my mother would be shouting that we came late and now everybody ate our food. Eventually my grandmother would call everybody to the kitchen, Open the lid from the pot, take out the kubane. Miraculously, there was one piece per person. <laughs> and in the end, every Saturday, my grandmother would say, Look, there's one extra slice of kubane. Anyone for seconds? And my mother would, you know, look at us like this, don't utter a word. We were all silent. And then my mother would say, Nobody? I'd have it. So uh-huh. there, I learned that women are very mischievous and very, you know, <laughs> they have their agendas.
0: Yes, yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. We do. We appreciate that. <laughs> That's a great story. So, speaking about your grandmother and food, I wonder if you could share, uh, talk about this recipe of your grandmother's for Zahug. Yes, and ah, you uh, pronounce it really well. I'm uh, impressed. Yeah, thank you. I ha- I had some good. I had a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and um, maybe you could tell us what it is and and uh, a little bit about the family folklore about that.
1: Yeah. So Israel is all about hot stuff. Israelis love hot, spicy food. You have many, many, many salsas that came to Israel from all the diaspora. Like you would have Hrein from the Ukraine or from Russia, which is horseradish sauce, very, very hot. You would have Arisa, which is a Tunisian hot sauce. You would have Amba, which is an Iraqi hot sauce. And you would have S'hug. S'hug is the Yemenite salsa. It may be either red or green. There are as many S'hug recipes as there are Yemenite grandmothers. (laughs) But, but... I'm going to give you the real recipe, the ultimate recipe, which is my grandmother's, of course. Of course. So it's very easy to remember because you know that seven is a sacred number. And my yes. grandmother's schug uh, uh, has seven ingredients. So three wet ingredients, that's coriander leaves, chili peppers. So you take one bunch of coriander leaves, uh, about 20 green chili peppers and the peeled cloves of one head of garlic, and then four dry uh, ingredients, salt, pepper, cumin, and cardamom. You put everything in the food processor, you zip it up, and you have the best hot salsa that keeps in the fridge for months. So, And we eat it with everything. You put it in soup, you put it in sandwiches, you put it on, on kubane, as I told you, uh-huh. you put it on uh, fish. It's really good.
0: Oh, it sounds amazing. And you don't have to, those people who are listening, you don't have to worry about running for that pencil because it'll all be on the website. Um, so don't worry. We're, we're we're preserving this.
1: We're taking care of you. Don't worry, yes, people. Yes, we are. Yes.
0: We are. Gil, can you tell me um, when food and recipes and those kinds of things became an important part of your life? Have you always thought about it or...
1: Uh, there, there's almost a date. <laughs> Whoa, that's almost a little scary. You know, I, as I said, we, we lived together with my grandmother. So it's my mother, my father, my, my brother and myself, and my grandmother, my mother's mother. And as it was always put to us, she did not live with us. We lived with her. Uh-huh. And uh, she was the empress of the house. We always had two maids, and she was bossing them around. But the <laughs> kitchen was her kingdom. And I was the weakest and, and, and the weakest, goofy, frail little grandchild, you know, that was running after all the, the, the big ones and the, being the annoying person that I still am. <laughs> and she always protected me. So now you would assume that I would say that I was, was with her in the kitchen and uh, this is where I learned how to cook mm-hmm. the other way around with Sephardi families. uh, Men in the kitchen bring only two things, dirt and bad luck. She never let me into the kitchen. Never, not even once. Uh, The day she died, when I was 20 years old, I was a soldier. The very day she died, I started cooking, only to preserve her flavors. Sure. So it's uh, 35 years ago. Um, oh. and, and this is why I cook. And I always say I'm not a chef, I'm not a trained chef, I never studied cookery, I cook like an elderly lady. And I think <laughs> that this is the best compliment that one can give oneself.
0: Well, it's experience, right? There's all that, all that knowledge about all the spices, all the recipes just like flowing.
1: And, and, the, and I think it really has to, to deal with love. It, it really comes from the heart, it doesn't come from the brain. And and food can come from the brain. You know, you have molecular cooking. You have all these very trendy new cuisines that mm-hmm. are very, very almost chemical. But no, grandma's cooking comes from the heart.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so lovely. <laughs> really lovely. So I know you've written a number of cookbooks. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little, tell us a little bit about them. And I know at one point there was one in English. I don't I, yeah. don't I don't know if it's accessible, but tell me about those cookbooks.
1: So I wrote about 15 cookbooks in Hebrew. Oh, my goodness. And that's strange, thinking that I'm not a chef and I wrote so many, but uh, I have been working as a restaurant critic for 30 years and I have been doing uh, food on TV, etc. So I do cook. Those are in Hebrew. Then came the day where um, uh, Yotam Otolenghi and Sami Tamimi published a very, very successful cookbook about Jerusalem called Jerusalem. They're two great guys. Yotam is one year uh, after me in the same high school, and Sami, who is an Arab-Israeli, is the sweetest, sweetest and most intelligent guy. They both live in London right now. And it was a, a magnificent cookbook, very successful all over the world, and I found it so annoying because although it's a very good cookbook, it has nothing to do with Jerusalem. This hmm. is not how people cook in Jerusalem. This is all, how should I put it, an Orientalist London-style fantasy about Israel. <laughs> it's it's not Israeli cooking. I grew up in Jerusalem, I know. Nobody ever cooked like this. It's so colorful and so luscious and so rich and so sophisticated this is not the food we grew up on and i wanted to write a book that would make people understand what it, what real everyday israeli cooking is about so mm-hmm. i wrote a cookbook in english called the confessions of a kitchen rabbitson because i wanted to become a kitchen goddess right uh, just write like uh, nigella lawson but a goddess i cannot be because i lack two very big advantages that she has <laughs> in the front so, but i said i can be a kitchen rabbitson and this is all so i assumed the identity of uh, rabbitson and the book is seven confessions of the rabbitson telling the stories of her life after every confession there is a bunch of recipes from her everyday life very 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 simple fare very you know direct food and the last confession begins with the words Well, to tell you the truth, I'm not really a woman. Actually, I'm a man, a gay man. So (laughs) this is the book. It's available only in Israel. Uh, But next uh, next time you're in Israel, you can get it. (laughs) I will.
0: Oh, what a disappointment to not be able to see it like right now, because I really want to. So I, I looked up some of your cookbook titles and some of your other books, and one of the books that sounded really intriguing to me was your wartime cooking in jerusalem what yes did it tell me about that it's
1: it's not really a book it's it's the name of my lecture ah. and it, it the name derives from my mother's story you know children always hear stories in order to make them finish up from their plate so you hear <laughs> about hungry children in india and hungry children in china and in africa since I grew up in a different family, or as Danny, my partner of about twenty-nine years, but it feels like thirty, always, you know, <laughs> he looks won't at hear me, this. No no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> always looks at me sadly and says, "Gilly, you are the last descendant in a dynasty of great women." <laughs> so the great women in our family always wanted stories to be grander. And my mother told me the story of the siege of Jerusalem in order to make me eat. Oh, my. So we grew up on stories of wartime cooking in Jerusalem. It didn't make us eat. We were the (laughs) skinniest children. And my grandmother would always scold my mother. They don't eat. They don't drink milk. They would die because (laughs) of you. And my mother would be paying us. We got Um, about 25 cents for every cup of milk that we agreed to drink, and we had uh, permission to throw up later. So in the summer vacation, since uh, uh, um, a morning film would cost 50 cents, we would drink two cups of milk, run to the toilet, throw up, and go to the movies. So I have my own milk
0: stories. Go ahead. Actually. Um, I hate M- milk.
1: Milk is always the enemy.
0: Yeah, I, I can't even look at it. Yes. And and uh, I have a number of siblings. And so I, one one sister was a partner with uh, with me. And my mother made us drink three glasses of milk uh, a day, which was just way beyond my capacity. And and luckily, we had a dog at, at a certain point. And so there would be the signal of getting the dog. The glasses went under the table. The dog finished off the milk. Everybody was happy. <laughs> and um life and the dog has very strong bones yes, <laughs> yes exactly exactly oh um yeah milk it is an, it it's the enemy yes it, I don't is. Know why. it is
1: it still is milk fish i do not eat fish uh <laughs> what else water i do not touch oh. water i don't i mean i bathe in water yeah, but yeah. i do not drink water um honey and cooked spinach oh. so for a restaurant critic there are many things that you I do not eat. eat, and you know, the, the, the Proverbs goes in Israel, you do not say yak about food, it's impolite. I said, I made a career of saying yak about food, so <laughs> please.
0: Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about your career as a food critic, and are you still doing that? Do you fit that in with your very
1: complicated and full life? <laughs> um, it started by chance. I was a student in the Hebrew U, I was studying Arabic and French, and I was dirt poor and um, I come from a well-to-do family but uh, I didn't want to take money no, no there was no fight or anything with sure. my family I just wanted to be independent. independent yeah and I said I'm not taking any money so I had to pay f- for my tuition and to pay rent for my apartment and I just didn't have enough money so I worked in four jobs I was an Arabic teacher I was cleaning houses and offices I was a bartender at the Sheraton in Jerusalem and I was a bartender in a uh, shady bar of criminals next to the Sheraton, but it (laughs) still wasn't enough. So uh, a friend of mine told me, if you can write as well as you speak, why don't you go to the local newspaper? Maybe they'll have a job for you. And I just came there and I said, hi, I would like to write. And they said, what about? I said, I don't know. And I said, Maybe you can write about tourism. I said, gladly. And then they said, you know what? Why don't you write bar critics? I said, wonderful. I'm a bartender. I know about that. And from that, I became a a food critic. And I've been doing it for 30 years now. And... um about 10 years ago, I withdrew from newspapers, from written newspapers, because it's it's a bit decaying now. Mm-hmm. So I moved to television, to radio, to internet, et etc. et cetera. So I'm still doing it, but not in print. And when you do
0: your food criticism, do you cover restaurants all over the country? Is it not just restaurants? Tell me a little bit about that. It's...
1: it's uh restaurants all over israel and all over the world i had a tv series that was called captain cook it was about the best restaurants in the world so i was traveling the globe only through three michelin star restaurants very nice very nice (laughs) yes someone has to do it a jew must make a living (laughs) and then but you know later on i did quite a few more shows about food and to tell you the truth Doing food shows on TV is all about faking orgasms. You, you keep saying this is the, one, the most wonderful dish I've ever had. This is so beautiful. This is a so good. And, you know, we're Israelis. We're much more direct. And I got bored with it. So I came up with an idea for a new show that I did that was called Kil Gil. <laughs> it was about the worst food you can find all over the world, and I was traveling the world looking for the worst dish that er, any country has to offer—not badly cooked dishes, right? But but dishes that are considered a uh, traditional delicacy of the place, but foreigners would find it appalling. And I must tell you that uh, life was very interesting. I I, I would came say across so. some some dreadful
0: stuff. And and did any of the dreadful stuff become? Okay for you. I mean, did, was there anything that others considered dreadful that you thought was really good?
1: Um, or was it let's all see. just in dreadful in China? It was century eggs. It, this is really really <sighs> bad. It, these are eggs that you bury in uh, limestone and horse urine for a few years, ah. and then they ferment, and then you eat them. It was this I didn't get to like. But in, in for, for instance, in um, in um, Bangkok, I had a duck tongue. Soup. So you get a bowl of soup. It's filled with heads of ducks. Okay. You have to open the beak and like French kiss the dead duck and pull on the tongue of the duck. And it's a bit elastic. So suddenly (laughs) it jumps into your face and you chew on it. Uh. And and actually (laughs) it wasn't that disgusting. I mean, the idea is dreadful, but the food itself was okay. In Mexico, I remember I, I went to an Aztec restaurant where... Okay, so you eat uh, escamoles, which is um, ants' caviar, so with the eggs of ants. Okay. But this is not so dreadful, but then you eat bugs. So you get a selection of all, all sorts of dead bugs. This is still bearable, but then... Oh, no. The the dish of the day is live bugs. So oh. you get a bowl of live bugs and you have to put them just underneath your ear, one bug, and then to open your mouth. And the bug senses the humidity and the heat of your mouth and it rushes into your mouth and then you chew on it. It wasn't fun, but I think that the bug had it worse. So so there. Uh, Always remember that there are two sides to the story. Yeah, yeah. He must be sitting right now in a podcast and saying, and then this Jewish guy came and chewed on <laughs> me. So there.
0: I'm just, I'm just picturing this bug going from your ear to your mouth. It just seems very odd. Good protein, though, right? Yes, of course.
1: And you know that Yemenites, by the way, eat locust. Locust is kosher. When we had... Locust in Israel in the beginning of the 50s, Israel was very poor. Everybody was devastated, but the Yemenites just fried them and ate them. So there. Okay. I have I have no comment about that. <laughs> it's very good with shug. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I can imagine we that it We won't would be. give the recipe, but it's very good with shog.
1: <laughs> Maybe
0: you can talk a little bit about your involvement in the history of Israeli cuisine and what you've done. And... I love the story about Marilyn Monroe. Would you tell that story? <laughs>
1: so um, the, the history of Israeli cuisine, in short, Israel was established as a socialist country. Up until the late 70s, it was almost impolite to indulge in food. Food was just to survive. There were the, the, the restaurants, the good restaurants in Israel could be counted like in a very short one-digit list, and um, people just did not care for food. Came the 80s, the rich 80s, the mm-hmm. uh, economy was booming. Israelis started traveling abroad and uh, they started uh, aiming at good food. And uh, luckily enough, this is when I started my career. So I was writing about food uh, and, and doing television about food and also Usually people ask, so what is the education that a restaurant critic needs? There is no school for that. Uh, the education is experience and I come from a family that that is very capitalist and both my parents were working. So we ate, we dined out a lot. Uh, so I was writing about that. And later on, I found out that Israeli food is just misunderstood in the world completely. So. If we take the, the funny part of it, it's the <laughs> Marilyn Monroe story. When she visited Israel, the only time she did, in the 50s, I believe, she was served chicken soup three times a day with, with matzo balls for breakfast, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because this is what all we, all we had in Israel. Eventually, she asked, is there any other organ of the matzo that one can eat? Because this was a bit too much for her. <laughs> um, but talking about misunderstanding Israeli food... I was doing my Captain Cook series, and I was shooting in New York right after 9-11, like, I think, two weeks after 9-11. And we get to uh, New York, and uh, as a good Israeli journalist, I call the Israeli consulate, and I say, well, we're an Israeli crew here. Maybe you can help us with cars, with, with I don't know, with hotels, whatever. And being Israeli diplomats, they said, we will not help you. You will help us. Turned out <laughs> that... Um, Ground Zero was evacuated. Uh, It was all, you know, in ruins. And uh, no businesses stayed open in Ground Zero. Only one restaurant stayed open, Nino's, an Italian restaurant that operated as a dining hall for the crews of firefighters that that were clearing the debris. Mm -hmm. And chefs from all over the world flocked to volunteer at Nino's and cook. Nobody came from Israel, and the guys from the Israeli consulate said, well, you're sort of a half-chef, so you do something. You cook breakfast for the firefighters. I said, gladly, it's a mitzvah, I'll do it. They forgot to tell me that it's for 600 firefighters. We come to the restaurant. Uh, <laughs> I said, what do we do? So we decided to to cook shakshuka. Shakshuka is the national Israeli omelet. It's a omelet with spicy tomato sauce. Everybody loves it in it Israel. Is. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's great street food. It's very direct. It's very warm. It's very, you know, it comes from the heart. So we make it. The firefighters come. They eat. They're very impressed. And they say, how interesting. In Israel, you have Mexican food for breakfast. <laughs> so... <laughs> So there is a lot to be explained about Israeli food.
0: So many great stories to hear about misunderstood Israeli cuisine. And sadly, I feel like we need to stop here. Not for good, just to end part one. I'm already excited about part two so we can continue this conversation to learn more about Israeli cuisine and who knows what other surprises Gil will have up his sleeve. Thanks so much for listening to The Big Schmear today. I want to give a special shout out to Spurtis Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago for providing the space to record this episode, and to the Office of the Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest for making it possible for me to have this time with Gil Havav. Our recording engineer is Hudson Fair, our editor and mix engineer is Steve Robinson, and our theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Check out thebigshmear.com to find recipes shared by my guests. That's TheBigSchmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening and happy eating.